The Koi Gig Pod. Well, I'm smiling from a Manchester United viewpoint. Champions League nearly in the bag. But Man City will be really disappointed. They didn't look like the team that had won 14 on the trot. Subscribe to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. Now you're welcome back. We are going to talk some tennis because there are a few different bits and pieces going on. at The summer now very much upon us. We have Wimbledon over the horizon and the French Open starts on Monday. It is suddenly uh, very much coming into view. Just having a look. Iga Sviatotek is the uh, firm favourite in the women's. Carlos Alcaraz is the favourite in the men's, followed by Novak Djokovic is where we uh, stand a week out. Very happy to say, Caitlin Thompson, co-founder of Racket Magazine, is with us. Long time no talk. You're very welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. I always pronounce Iga Sviatek's name wrong. I even looked it up on YouTube five minutes before talking to you and completely welched on it there <laughs> when I was doing it. So I just can't get it into my head. My understanding is it's Sviatek. And yeah. I have had a number of back and forth with the people of Poland because on my own podcast, the Racket Magazine podcast co-hosted with Renee Stubbs, I went so far as to say that I think Iga is an incredible player. As you noted, she's the favorite of the French Open, having won it twice. But she's not necessarily my favorite to watch. Mm-hmm. Poland had a lot of complaints. And I understand there were news articles written about it. So oh, wow. just tread carefully, Joe, is what I'm saying. <laughs> okay. We're going to talk about Iga. I'm going to refer to her in future lovingly as Iga. And we can settle on that. On uh, I mentioned Djokovic, second favourite. Sorry, this is a little bit off uh, beaten track. You didn't watch the Boris Becker documentary by any chance, did you? Of course I watched the Boris Becker documentary. I thought you might have. Okay, so I watched it as well. I thought on Djokovic, so we didn't... I, I don't know how much we learned about Boris Becker in some ways, as good as the footage was. But Djokovic, like, popped up in this uh, flyby kind of... Uh, three, four, five minute interview sparsed over a, a 10 minute period because Becker obviously was his coach for a time and I thought he was very revealing in so much as anyone would be in that he was saying, I don't know if this is common knowledge in your world, but it was new to me. So in effect, Djokovic was talking about the influence Becker had in him and he was saying that basically he had been for a large part of his career suffering with guilt about his actions off the court and as a result, in effect, he was self-sabotaging on the court, almost uh, overcome with a kind of self-loathing uh, to the extent that he couldn't allow himself excel or, or be happy. And it seemed Boris kind of said, listen, kid, cut yourself some slack. I thought, bloody hell, that is interesting. Completely fascinating. I mean, I think watching Novak Djokovic play tennis, obviously the brilliance is undeniable in terms of how he moves and how he defends. Obviously, his results speak for themselves. But also people kind of tend to forget because sometimes he makes himself the villain in terms of some of the behavior that he's incredibly well-spoken. He's very thoughtful. And while we might not like the things he says sometimes, he articulates himself incredibly well. And I thought actually he was probably one of the best parts of this Boris Boris Becker documentary, even though, as you note, he wasn't in it very long, just kind of as a throwaway for that period of time that Becker coached him. But One of the things I found so frustrating about the Boris Becker documentary is even though, as you note, there was incredible footage, incredible archives, great, beautiful tennis scenes of him practicing with Steffi Graf in Germany in the 80s, but it kind of missed some of the big moments and opportunities to delve into personalities, coterie, stars, and really the tennis portion of things. So I was happy that it existed and happy to watch it and thought it was illuminating you said about some of the other players specifically Djokovic but also others I can think of um, but it didn't quite get all the get all the p 
pieces correct. And I think maybe you could probably think of maybe 10 or 15 stories that came out of that that I would love to see follow up on because it was so, you know, it raised questions that it didn't answer. Yes. And even on, say, the Djokovic point alone, you would love uh, a, just a touch more uh, depth to that or a follow up or even a Boris, what did you do with Djokovic about the guilt thing? That's kind of a, a really interesting area. But it seems, I mean, to my eye, it looked like the Becker footage was based on two different interview sessions with Gibney. Uh, to be fair, one of them was like two days before he's about to be sentenced in 2022. And he's incredibly vulnerable and teary eyed. And, and so it starts with a bang in that way. But it probably suffers in that you can't suddenly say, well, what about this Djokovic thing we've just recorded? And, and so, like I saw The Guardian gave it two stars, which felt a touch harsh. They talked about the wonderful archive footage, but they said ultimately unrevealing about its subject, a frustrating and disappointing experience, anticlimactic. Um, I, I guess that's I guess that's kind of true. And, and when it's Alex Gibney, you go in with higher hopes, perhaps. I think my read on the documentary itself was that Alex Gibney, who is obviously celebrated for good reason, has made some incredible documentaries. I'm thinking of, you know, Taxi to the Dark Side, for example, and many others. Um, I think they probably underbaked it a little bit mm. because I think that they, with more time and care, could have crafted, you know, a six, eight part series here. I am not sure what story they were trying to tell because there are so many stories. You can talk about the tennis alone. You can talk about his, you know, becoming a cultural attache to Central African Republic. You know, each of these things could have its own sort of day. And I think at the end, it sort of ended up being a jumble. But because I think they started with the access, and I think getting him to sit down two days, as you know, before he was imprisoned, mm. felt like such an opportunity to have a chance to talk with him. And also, Boris is not, I mean, he might not be the most... Uh, I don't want to say self-aware because I think he is trying to be self-aware. He can be a little defensive, but he he's a talker. He's not going to be, uh, you know, he's not going to clam up. And so I think for me, especially as such a tennis fan and a Boris Becker fan, I really wanted to see uh, the subject treated a little bit more thoughtfully. It felt rushed to me. But again, yeah. you know, one of the things about tennis that's so, uh, well, the nice way to put it is there's such an opportunity is there's so many undertold stories. And whenever you get anybody doing a documentary, especially one with sort of the production values that an Alex Gibney jigsaw his production company and the ability of them to get all those rights from all that old Wimbledon footage from HBO, you know, there's just not enough tennis coverage yeah. and tennis docs to even really, I feel like have that much of a complaint. I mean, that sounds like I'm damning it by faint praise and I kind of am, mm. but you know, it's just that in a in a world where there's such a dearth of good tennis storytelling, anything feels like uh, it, it's a, you know, it's a chewy morsel. So I don't know that I'm that harsh on it, but I do agree that there's many, many questions. It didn't it didn't it left unanswered. Yeah, I would still really heartily recommend it because the footage is so extraordinarily brilliant. And yes, in my memory, several weeks on from having watched it, all that really lingers is the footage less so what anyone is saying maybe Boris in tears in one of the interviews um, but but that's okay with me because the footage was so amazing but I, even the interviewing style it's funny that Gibson, I saw like, Gibney's obviously Oscar uh, winner and, and amazing but even when they're dealing with things like listen this is the salacious terrible person that I am but I was uh, eagerly anticipating the um, 
baby conceived in restaurant saga, even the treatment of that was kind of odd. Like, and I don't mean this in a pearl clutching way, like human nature being what it is. Um, it's it's not the most outlandish thing I've heard by some distance. But like, there was no sense of. We, did you feel guilty afterwards? Were you routinely doing this? You know, was this the way you were behaving or was this a one off or didn't know the answers to any of those questions? And here was Boris happily talking about it, though. Yeah, he was not a reticent subject. And I think I get the sense that he probably would have sat for more interviews. I mean, the, the access that Gibney gets is incredible. Yeah. The fact that Jan Tyriak, who kind of ends up being I don't want to say a hero, but he certainly comes off better than I have understood Jan Tyriak to be in this film. Barbara Becker is very forthcoming. So the access itself is just so extraordinary. I think it's a really interesting missed opportunity to have a, I, I think a longer or a more sort of crafted narrative that I think speaks to the fact that it was a little bit rushed out the door. And I also think like, you know, when we think about, uh, you know, tennis documentaries, we really do have to, I think we, we, we haven't had very many good ones. And I think for that reason, there's not, I think a good, uh, one film that exists that kind of captures the sport. I mean, the closest thing I can think of is, maybe, you know, the French by William Klein, which is, you know, a, a cinema verite uh, experience from, you know, the early 80s. There's not been a ton of coverage of this the way that, you know, football is covered or basketball or, yeah. you know, American football, for example. And so, you know, I think hopefully this inspires a league of other conversations and follow-ups and, you know, and, and you know, not to toot our own horn, but that's certainly what Racket was built for. Yeah. If we had you know, a giant staff, I would have assigned probably 10 or 15 follow-up stories just on the things that the the documentary raised that we didn't have time to hear the answers to. Because God knows, between Becker, Barbara, and Jan Tyriak, and others, Djokovic included, we probably would have gotten some really great answers. Oh. So yeah, I mean, maybe there'll be a sequel. We can only hope. There should be. And um, I think two stars, by the way, is very harsh. I would give it three and a bit because the footage is that good. Uh, one, if you, if you do send your racket team out for different angles <laughs> I, I found myself laughing out loud at a very inconsequential moment but it's where Becker is playing Sampras and Sampras wins and Becker comes up to the net and the, the footage is so good it's it's picked up on Mike and Becker uh, you know kind of a legend of the sport at that say, stage says to Pete Sampras that's my last ever match at Wimbledon Pete and Pete at the net kind of looks at him vacantly and goes oh really and then walks off towards the umpire. <laughs> and I thought, I need to know more about Pete Sampras. The access itself, and it really is, I think, um, I can't describe to you the frustration of being in tennis media and being at times the only voice pushing for things like the HBO footage to be freely disseminated, for HBO to still have the rights to broadcast tennis matches for that archive and this incredible treasure trove of history to be readily accessed. It sometimes feels like the people who are the stewards of the sport, meaning the governing bodies and the slams, um, are trying to spite it for reasons that I don't quite understand. Because as soon as you see this footage, you just realize how remarkable so much of it is and how different it is from the kind of access and sort of you know, fawning and overproduced commentary we get now from especially in the US uh, broadcast networks. Like 
all you need is to put a camera in the right place and mm. capture a moment like you just described. From what I understand, Pete Sampras is a very stoic, very, you know, man of few words. <laughs> no kidding. And the fact that his reaction was such, it's almost like he didn't fully process it, but also it kind of speaks to the fact that a lot of these athletes are so, you could be nice and say focused, or you could be harsh and say simpletons, but either way, he didn't have the tools or the moment's appreciation, you know, partly because he's surprised, but also partly because that's not, you know, we don't. Mm. just because somebody's a grand slam champion doesn't mean that they're necessarily able to speak extemporaneously in a, an emotionally vulnerable way. Right. True. And I think there's just so many amazing, uh, yes, we should do a follow-up sort of documentary about Pete Sampras, but my hunch is like other people like Steffi Graf who appeared very, um, you know, minimally in the doc, yeah. uh, and other sort of legends, some of them don't want to talk. Some of them don't want to appear some of them don't you know want to revisit this parts of their lives that's not a problem for becker yeah. which means to me somebody should do a very very sort of interesting maybe salacious but also kind of more complete follow-up again it, it sounds like we're massively down on it i would still massively recommend it um sorry about that that was a bit of a tangent on the Djokovic thing in particular but to the current situation i'm every time i i click on a tennis uh, story there's controversy at the moment it's just uh, bubbling away so in various uh, orders the Madrid Open as uh, the clay court season is uh, kicks off uh, the story here was about ball girls in attire which was deemed as overly sexualized and revealing crop tops short skirts Madrid Open famously had models as ball girls in 04 so the clothes were swapped out for uh, something less revealing and then it seems as well speeches were cancelled after uh, Iga criticised a match finishing at 1am and so then in the women's doubles they weren't allowed to speak afterwards Iga's match finished at 1am um, and then there was a whole kerfuffle over Alcaraz getting a bigger birthday cake than Ariana Sabalenka uh, and this was quote tweeted by Victoria Azarenka effectively saying well this shows right here the difference in treatment of men and women at uh, the Madrid Open and perhaps beyond that as well in the tennis world. So, uh, full of acrimony. You know, there's two ways to sort of parse the Madrid Open chaos. One is which to be up in arms and upset about what was clearly a pattern of sort of misogynist treatment. And to review, as you said, first of all, Arena Sabalenka, who had a birthday during the tournament and Carlitos Alcaraz, who also had a birthday, had two different sized birthday cakes. Is that a big deal? I'm not sure. Uh, one was, you know, eight times the size of the other. One was presented on court. That was to Carlos Alcaraz. The one presented to Arena Sabalenka was little. You know, I'm willing to sort of not, to look askance at the circumstances of celebrating a player's birthday, which I'm not even sure is the tournament's job to do. Yeah. That said, when you start looking at the fact that the ball girls and i do say girls because most of these women were young scantily clad and overtly sexualized is not a new phenomenon at madrid specifically jan tiriak who we were just speaking about as part of the boris becker documentary having been his coach and manager for a time used to run this tournament and sort of famously made it a little more lascivious than every other stop on the tournament however img owns it now and the fact that the tournament directors allowed this outfit tradition to continue was bizarre mm. to say the least but the thing that really is actually the most upsetting and the most uh unprecedented and i think 
cause for actual controversy and follow-up is the fact that after the women's doubles match, none of the women were allowed to speak. Yeah. There is not a tournament on the circuit at any level, challenger, 25K, futures, etc. But I've played tournaments uh, both at the collegiate but also like the very, very beginning stages of the pro, uh, the pro circuit where the winner and the runner-up gets to speak. They thank the tournament organizers, they thank their families, etc. The fact that at a Masters 1000 mandatory tournament, the women's doubles contenders, three of whom are name brand singles players, Victoria Azarenka, who was part of the winning team with Beatrice Sadabmaya, uh, Coco Goff, who is fabulously famous, especially in the US, and Jesse Pagula, who are in the top 10 of singles, we're not given an opportunity to speak after a very, very good match because, as you noted, Iga Sviantek had made a comment about her match being scheduled, uh, a, a deprioritization of women in the scheduling, resulting in more women having to bear the brunt of bad scheduling and play matches deep into the evening. The fact that Victoria Ezranka had tweeted support for that and the cake situation. And then the women's outfits being of such controversial nature the men in charge of the tournament decided they would literally deplatform the women and not give them the opportunity to speak. That's sort of unforgivable. And to me, it would merit a very heavy fine, a follow-up by both the ATP and the WTA, which I understand maybe there's some sort of uh, examination or, or conversation in progress. But the fact that uh, they were literally not given the chance to win a microphone, as Renee Stubbs said on our podcast, having played a number of Masters 1000 tournaments, if you are in the finals of a match and your family has come to visit you, maybe that's the only Masters 1000 final you'll ever find yourself in. And then to not be given the microphone. And to be clear, the men, obviously, everybody got to speak on the men's side. So the idea that these women had been too, I don't want to use the word, uppity but they had been too outspoken that they couldn't be trusted to have uh you know speeches uh is sort of insane to me um and i think again it speaks to the fact that this tournament in particular has had a lot of issues and the fact that you know the tournament that we're watching right now rome doesn't pay women men and yes. women remotely equally so it is sort of frustrating to feel like we here we are back in you know the dark ages when women are you know not allowed to have uh you know credit cards without their husband's name on it and they can't vote yeah. so it's sort of like what is this sport is this the most modern female friendly sport that we've seen and that we love or is this some sort of like return to the dark ages where you know women can't get a microphone without the permission of the men it's yes. not a great look Bizarre. like what like how dumb as well i mean to not have the foresight like even if you were just being cynical and they were all sitting around saying well, these women are too hysterical to talk, frankly. Uh, <laughs> right. But even if that's where they were, to not then go, well, even though this is what we privately think would be terrible on goal, we'll be much criticised if we actually take the microphone away from them. Even that level of that lack of foresight is like worrying. 100%. And I think for me, you know, one of the things that makes tennis so amazing and one of the reasons it's such a great sport, it is literally the only sport that professional athletes can play at the same time on the same field. Mm. Mixed doubles itself as an event exists in a context where no other professional sport has its best men and women playing tennis at the same time. I, the example that I love using is when I watched Andy Murray and Serena Williams walk out on court together as a mixed doubles pair. And I was moved to tears because it was one of the coolest things I'd ever seen in sport. And 
that's something that tennis has always done really well. Tennis is celebrating 50 years of the Women's Tennis Association. This year, the original nine started the tour in 1953. And tennis, in a lot of ways, has been on the right side of history with racial inclusion and breaking the race barrier that Althea Gibson broke uh, at Wimbledon itself, winning that slam, that Arthur Ashe continued, that LGBT athletes in the 80s and 90s, you know, had that really paved the way for this really transformational sport that allowed women to make something approximating what their male counterparts made. There's still no sport that comes close to tennis. The top earning female athletes in the world, I think there's a stat, as of this year, it's eight out of the top 10 are tennis players. Okay. And for me, just the fact that we are still having this conversation where women can't be trusted to get the microphone, um, I think they should cancel Madrid. If I were the WTA and the ATP, which claim to be united, We'll prove it. Boycott. Like, let's get political. And so when you set this segment up as saying that it's controversial and there's a hullabaloo, to me, that's not a bad thing. I think it's exciting because sports are always inherently political. It's just which side are you on? Are you part of the side of the inherent power structure or are you going to be disruptive and and be a voice for change? Tennis has been historically a very cool platform for change. And I think for me, the fact that these athletes are playing week in and week out in conditions that are wildly different especially between pay and treatment, the way that the last two events have illustrated. It's cool. It's cool to draw attention to it. And it's cool to use this sport and this moment, uh, I think, to to have an, a moment of activism. And I hope that that's what happens. You did mention the Italian Open. So we're currently at Rome ahead of the French Open. The purse for the men's is eight and a half million dollars. The women's three point nine million dollars. So less than half. Now, they have said this will be fixed in two years time has been their response very famously, the men and women get the same now at the four Grand Slam tournaments. So is the Italian very much an outlier? Is it one of several across the year where there's a big discrepancy? It's one of several. Uh, There are Canadian Open, which is played in alternating cities, Toronto and Montreal, who take turns hosting the men and women. Uh, The Cincinnati Open, which is now... Uh, under new ownership likely to move out of Cincinnati. That's called the Western and Southern Open. Uh, Those are other major, major, major tournaments that have huge pay pay discrepancy. And it's weird because I think, you know, without wanting to open the entire can of worms that the best of five sets tends to open um, because it's ironic that the men play longer, well, not necessarily longer matches, but they play more sets at the Grand Slams where there is equal pay. But at these tournaments that we were just talking about, many of which do not have equal pay, it's best of three. Um, so it's interesting because I think we know that the joint events in terms of revenue, in terms of attendance, in terms of broadcast, in terms of ticket sales, they by far do the best. Uh, and there's also another sort of factor here, which is if you're a woman professional tennis player, a lot of weeks, you don't have very many events to play. There was a one point during the early part of this calendar year, 2023, I think five events on the ATP tour for every one event on the women's tour. And so as I've been in this sport as a media owner and journalist for the last eight or nine years, and keep in mind, I was a political reporter before this, so I have no problem asking hard questions and holding people's feet to fires. Um, The one thing that's really struck me is just how inept the leadership is. We have this incredible product, we have this global sport, and as I just noted, we have a sport that has the opportunity for women to make something approximating the same amount as the men, Uh, that we know is really unique and cool when they can combine in one event. I I think, frankly, nothing short of a complete rethink, a complete reboot, and probably a lot of firings need to happen at the top levels of the game 
in terms of tournament directors, in terms of how these events are organized, where they're put and how they're thought about, what kind of purses go along with them. And what the sport is really about is is overdue. And I think one of the things that's exciting at the moment, even though it is filled with tension and, and chaos, mm-hmm. is just we are in the process of watching a very, very antiquated sport, even though the product itself is incredibly modern with global superstars, um, incredibly dynamic varieties of race, gender, class, socioeconomic status. Tennis really does reach into every part of the world. But we're watching a very dynamic product really compete with an archaic ownership and infrastructure that, you know, has resisted modernizing. And I think that time is really common uh, come and gone for for it to do so. And so I think one of the things that absolutely has to happen is that tennis needs to rapidly uh, shed its ossified, you know, managerial layer and get with the times. And that means looking at every single aspect of the sport from what we're talking about in terms of gender treatment, gender pay, but also how many events there are and why and how they engage with fans and what they're for. And I think that's such a tremendously cool opportunity that uh, even though it sounds like it's complete chaos, it actually, I think, is, uh, you know, necessary for the sport to be, uh, you know, really reborn as this amazing, dynamic, healthy thing that it, it deserves to be because the product is amazing. Um, it's just been held back, I think, by a lot of its hidebound sort of ownership. 